Hello and welcome to Energy Unplugged by Aurora. This podcast features various experts from Aurora having in-depth conversations with key industry leaders, policymakers and academics from all over the world. It explores the hottest topics across the energy market and gives a unique perspective on major energy issues. Welcome to Energy Unplugged. I'm Hugo Batten, Managing Director of Aurora in APAC. We're delighted to be joined today by our first guest from the Philippines, and it's a very distinguished one. Mona Lisa Dimalanta, Chairperson of the Energy Regulatory Commission, the ERC of the Philippines. Prior to this role, she was a partner at PJS Law, as well as a professor at Ateneo de Manila Law School and also spent time at Aboitis Power as Chief of Legal. Mona, welcome to Energy Unplugged. Delighted you can join us. Thank you. Thank you, Hugo, for inviting me over, and thank you for having the Philippines Energy Regulatory Commission on your show. We're also joined today by John Fedderson, Aurora's founder and CEO. John, thanks for joining as well. Thanks for having me, Hugo, and, and really looking forward to this conversation with Mona Lisa. Um, terrific. So for our listeners who are perhaps slightly less familiar with energy trends in the Philippines, Mona, can you perhaps give us a kind of state of the nation? And we might break this down under a, a few topics. Could you just give us a little bit of background of the history of Philippines' electricity system and just the basics of the market design? It has a wholesale market. Um, it's looking at a capacity market, those kind of things. So, so listeners know what we're, we're getting into. All right, some history lesson. We go as far back as the 1930s if we talk about the, the power system in the Philippines because our, our power system is really built on, um, on uh, not many people know about this, but our power system was really built on the bedrock of renewables. That's what I keep saying. With Even when I was still chair of the National Renewable Energy Board some in 2019 to 2021, um, when the National Power Corporation, that's our state-owned uh, power company, was formed in 1930, uh, its mandate was to explore hydropower resources in the Philippines. And that was really the intention to power the islands with hydropower resources, which makes absolute sense because we're, you know, we're a group of islands surrounded by water. So the, the idea was to nurture, enhance, and, and build on this, you know, on this bounty that we find ourselves in. This mandate was expanded sometime in the 1970s to explore also geothermal resources, again, which makes most more sense for us being in this Pacific Ring of Fire. So this, for many decades, our country was powered by hydropower resources and geo, geothermal resources. That's why I think up until 2019, we were second in the world for production of geothermal uh, power, where we lost to Indonesia, I think, sometime in 2020, sometime in 2020, but we were second to the US for, for many decades. So this changed when I think the, the government opened up the sector to private, um, private sector participation, because initially it was all government funded. When it was open to uh private participation sometime in the 1980s, all the way to the late 1990s, that's when um coal and um and petroleum-powered uh, uh, 
facilities were introduced to the system. And then the turning point, I think, was in 2001 when the sector was deregulated, when the generation sector was deregulated. And um, it was really purely uh, private funding that has really built um, the expansion of capacities in the country. Today, we are predominantly, the system is predominantly coal-based um, with uh, with a significant portion of natural gas coming from our indigenous resource. We have one very significant natural gas find in the Philippines, and it powers about uh, 30% of our of our system. And then the rest of coal, uh, coal covers about 50% of our capacity. And then the rest is the what we call the legacy RE and the um the new uh, renewables that have come in uh after 2008 when the renewable energy law was passed in the country to to jumpstart again our our um sort of our reversion not a transition for the Philippines a reversion to renewable energy based systems and and that's where we find ourselves in today we have um we have a coal moratorium that's in place since 2020 so no additional coal plants are being built in the country and um we are really jump starting our jump starting again our uh, our utilization of renewables in the system and in terms of the market structure from memory i think the wholesale market kicked off in 2006 somewhere around yes. there maybe right. a little bit of detail about that oh. the actual kind of structure of the the market yes. and, and how it's organized Actually, the market system follows the what I mentioned earlier, the turning point in 2001, when the market was when the generation sector was deregulated, it became a competitive sector, and then our used to be vertically integrated system now is is uh, significantly privatized with um, the generation sector purely privatized. The transmission sector, um, it's the assets are still owned by. A government corporation, but the operations is via a concessionaire, and then we have retail market also um, already in place in the in the system where large customers can contract directly with their own suppliers. Then all these things are are factored into our wholesale electricity spot market, which is a gross pool market. So everything is um, offered to the market. All capacity in the system is required to be offered to the market. And then the market is the one that um, sets the, the merit order dispatch and issues the instructions to the system operator. And the market, we now have a five-minute market. So trading happens every five minutes uh Every day, every single day, unless there is um, the only exceptions would be if there is a, if there is a typhoon that really affects a significant portion of the market, then we declare some market intervention there. But those are those are really um, you know not not uh, not a commonplace. So we have a fully functioning market where all traders are you know are we set uh, of course there's a market price that is reported on a regular basis. And uh, sends hopefully the proper signals to to all investors and players so that we get um, all this interest in place. I find it interesting, sort of the the motivation to liberalise Mona. For example, we had Pat Wood on, who was the chair of FERC, and he pushed a lot of the liberalisation of the US markets. Uh, but of course, he only got sixty percent of the way there, and, and it never happened in forty percent of the US. Can you say a little bit about the motivation for a country like the Philippines? 
you know, what was the what was the hope or what was the intention of liberalizing the the power market uh, at the time? Okay, I think there were two two um, significant drivers there. The first was it really wasn't uh, sustainable anymore for government to keep funding the growth of the sector. Um, at the time that the that two thousand one law was passed. National Power Corporation, which is a state-owned uh, company, was already riddled with debt, um, and it was responsible responsible for like one third of the country's debt. So that was that was clearly you know a, a, an issue that needed to be addressed. The second, the second motivation was really there was a wave of if you recall around that time, and I'm sure we're all alive already in two thousand one. Um, there was some sort of wave of privatization that was really going on around the world. And I think the Philippines was was not spared of that of that wave. And um, there were a lot of benefits that were seen uh, from privatization, including increased competition, which could drive down the the idea was to drive down prices with competition. So two things, uh, save government in a way from from that burden, continuous burden of subsidizing, uh, power and then introduce competition to really lower down, lower the prices. I think there's probably two other things that are, are quite unique to the Philippines. I mean, one, and from memory, it's something like 2,000 inhabited islands amongst 7,000 plus. So real grid challenges, um, but also, you know, really rapid growth in demand. I think the population of Philippines is something around 120 million people. Per capita electricity use is low, but but growing quickly. They're they're two quite unique features, I think, of of the system, and and do make the transition more challenging. Mm-hmm. They are they. You're absolutely right. It's it's quite unique. Although we are not the only archipelago, not even in the region, right? We, mm. we look at Indonesia, which is also an archipelago, but. Admittedly, with larger land mass than the Philippines, we also have Japan, which is also, you know, a group of islands, um, which uh, I guess the differentiator there would be in terms of economic ability, Japan would have more capacity to invest in its own uh, in its own resources. So we have a unique condition, set of conditions, I think, in the Philippines. But I think the 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 opportunities overwhelm mm. the the challenges i think especially with newer technologies being smaller in scale i think that's yeah. that's the that's where our opportunity lies um that it's challenging to connect all 7600 islands in one grid but right now we're, we the three main islands are connected already physically Luzon, Visayas and Mindanao and the, and that's where the load centers are in mm. those in those three large islands, the smaller islands, there are um, there are plans to connect some of the larger, smaller islands uh, where there's really significant economic activity, and it would make uh, you know it would make sense. It would be viable to connect these islands physically, but for some of the islands that are mainly residential. Uh, with residential customers, some economic activity, but not quite. Maybe resorts can be mm. are, are located in those islands. Dive spots are are located in those islands. That's where renewable renewable energy facilities can really make a, can really make a difference because these mm. are smaller in scale, uh, where you know sunlight abounds and water is water surrounds them, and it's it's really. The challenge, I think, is how to find or finding, creating, designing that 
model of a project that fits into the circumstances of these uh, of these islands. So there are challenges, but I think there are more opportunities with given with given what we have in the country. Totally agree. Before we get on to kind of regulation in the Philippines, then it would also be great to just get you to touch on some of the recent policy announcements. So the Philippine Energy Plan, I think the target is 35% renewable energy generation by 2030 and 50% by 2040. So, you know, reasonably aggressive goals from where we are today. And that's backed in particular by a green energy auction uh, program. So regular auctions to provide right. uh, stable revenues for renewables and and bring on something like 11 to 12 gigawatts over the next uh, short to medium term, as well as renewable portfolio standards for mm-hmm. retailers. Could you talk a little bit about the ambition here and what impact that's having on the market in the Philippines? Yep. Okay. Um, the ambition is really uh, is really quite new. Um, when when I was chairing the National Renewable Energy Board in 2019, that renewable portfolio standard, which is a quota, um, a minimum that all utilities and retailers must have, must source from renewables as mm. part of their portfolio. That number was just one percent of you know of their total portfolio. And then we worked towards um, getting that that number to get us to 35% RE by 2030 because that has been the what was called the aspirational target back in 2010 but when we checked you know when we checked the the data when we reviewed um how we were going in terms of are we getting closer to 35% by 2030 what we realized was that what we found out was that um from the time the renewable energy act was passed in 2008 when the country was already with when the system was already 34% powered by renewables in 2008 we were at a uh, 19% to 20% in 2019 so instead of it was really counterintuitive that mm. with the renewable energy act instead of increasing the utilization of re it even went down significantly so, you know, the, the advocacy then and NREB, the National Renewable Energy Board, was really a, a research arm, uh, an advocacy arm uh, for, for the Department of Energy. We really advocated that this aspiration become an imperative. And with that, we used, you know, science-based, uh, science-based approach. We had our own modeling, our own assumptions, cost assumptions put into that model. And we worked back. What will it take to get to 35% by 2030, knowing where we are today? And what resulted was we need to increase that renewable portfolio standard of 1% to 2.52% starting mm. 2023. And it's good that you know the Department of Energy adopted our recommendations. And now that RPS, Renewable Portfolio Standard, that quota, now stands at 2.52%. And that assures that we will get to... 35% by 2030. But that's on the demand side. How do we make sure that the supply is there to get us to that 35%? And that's where the green energy auction comes in. The Department of Energy holds uh, so far annual auctions. And I think for this year, they'll be holding two because we, there was one that was already concluded um, sometime July of this year. Then another one is slated for November um, for uh geothermal and hydropower capacity. So these are these two components go hand in hand. On the demand side, we make sure that 
Uh, there is a minimum demand to get us to that imperative of 35% by 2030 and then 40% by 50% by 2030. And on the supply side, the auction ensures a steady stream of, of supply of new capacity that is being built to meet to meet that demand. Right. And is that is that an argument, Mona, for you talked about the the portfolio standards being at one percent, which presumably didn't bite in the sense that there were enough there were enough renewables there in the system that oh, yeah. the, the, the cost of compliance was very low. Mm-hmm. But I, I do in some jurisdictions I, I see you know people want to introduce a carbon price or they want to introduce you know auctions for green power and and the debate kind of lets the but you know they're saying let the best be the enemy of the good in the sense that I think there'll be some who will say well if we can get the policy set up even if it's not powerful even if it's a five dollar carbon price or a ten dollar carbon price it's something we can build from whereas the other the argument says well if we don't if we don't do it properly, let's not do it at all because we miss our shot. Do you think having that, even if it wasn't a very ambitious policy, do you think having that policy in place and pre-existing enabled you to move faster when when the public will was there? Definitely, because all investors, and no exception, all investors were saying back in 2019 when the policy was still at 1% and the 35% was still called an aspiration, all the investors were saying, Send us the signals. Where are we going? So I think there was a, a, a twin twin movement that happened. First, the declaration of the coal moratorium in twenty in twenty twenty. So that's a clear signal that okay, the the Department of Energy will not license any more new or greenfield coal plants. At least in the I think the the horizon set there was twenty twenty five that they will not uh, they will not license no coal plants and then the second is really this the the RPS because it's sort of hard coded into our planning mm. into our Philippine energy plan the that aspiration and then it became as I mentioned earlier it became an imperative it the conversation turned from is it nice to get there to how do we get there yeah. so that was that was really uh, I think. Those two developments were really key in in getting us to where we are where we are today. Right. So so looking forward, so you've got the portfolio standards, you've got the green auctions, you're closing the coal, and that's giving investors the confidence to build. You know, is that it? Is it mission accomplished? This is going oh, to do no. the job, or <laughs> what, what, what are the next challenges on the horizon that you see, Mona? Yeah, I think the there are several more challenges that we <laughs> that we need to confront. Um, and one immediate challenge, and I think we're not alone in this one. Uh, I think we see it in other jurisdictions as, as well. Is how will the grid cope with this? Mm. Um, with this new, with this onslaught, if I may put it that way, with this onslaught of new renewable uh, projects sprouting all over the country. So I think that's the that's the number one challenge. We have, a, as I mentioned earlier, we have a private concessionaire operating our grid, and I think for the most part of the of the decade, they were used to of the previous decade, they were used to applications for grid connections that were maybe 10, 10 a quarter, twenty in a year. But now you have in the auctions um, the DOE announcing. 30, 50 winners of, you know, mm-hmm. 30 projects, 50 projects awarded per auction. 
now they now they have you know a deluge of 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 applications and you know determining what will be the impact of all these renewables intermittent most of them uh in in the grids in the grid and you know how do we how do they make the space um that's that's just on processing of applications but in terms of ensuring system stability that's also quite challenging how do you how do they how do they make sure the grid remains stable with with um with all these uh, renewables coming in so i think that's that's an in a very very near horizon we need to we need to address that that point and i think the, the what remains to be apart from that moving moving on for that from that would be the entry of large scale renewables i mentioned earlier um the department of energy will conduct an auction for geothermal and hydro this is like you know, traveling back in time, where in the 1930s and 1970s, as I mentioned earlier, we were really building pump storage hydro and large geothermal plants. And the desire is to, you know, in, to introduce again these large projects, not only for for the branding of green, but really because the system needs them. The system needs stabilizing the stabilizing feature of these uh, of these projects and. And we need to do it sooner rather than than later, considering that these projects take uh, a longer gestation time for compared to you know solar and and wind. So mm. that's I think just just few of of the challenges that we that we need to um, we need to address in the very near term. Right. Yeah. And I'd I'd like to touch briefly on your comment about needing to do it sooner rather than later. But but just one observation. It's so you know it's so interesting. Aurora's in a bunch of different countries um, operating, and you know it's just this pattern recognition about you can almost you can almost predict what the problems will be at a certain point in time. You know how do we connect everything to the grid? You're, you know Philippines mm-hmm. is not alone in having this challenge of you know enormous amounts of capital that want to come in and build projects, but. Uh, a grid, a grid that doesn't necessarily handle the renewables peak uh, mm-hmm. so, so so much. So uh, and then obviously system stability and um and how you how you solve that with markets and with technologies is a big one. So just an observation really that it's I think probably if you went back fifty years the problems were all very different. You know there was a, oh yeah you, you know yes. there's France building a nuclear fleet. The Philippines with legacy geo, you know, high, geothermal and hydro uh, and hydropower. These things are all very different and very much mm-hmm. local creations mm-hmm. around the political system. Whereas now, I think a lot of these problems are converging, which is, which I suppose, good in a way. There's economies of scale in in in, yes. in problem solving, but but um, makes it makes problem solving very challenging. Also, I think um, because as I I think in in different venues, I've I've talked about this that there are multiple transitions going on it's not just a transition from from high carbon to low carbon systems it tra- it's a transmission also from a highly centralized to a decentralized system mm. it's a transition of high energy intensity to low energy intensity system and they're all happening at the same time so <laughs> it's quite um quite a challenge to be navigating on in this space at this point in time but very exciting too, I think. Very exciting. So, uh, yeah, yes, yes very exciting. So on the sooner or later bit, I have this famous, I, I, like I remember back to an Aurora conference maybe five or six years ago and the Alex Chisholm, who who was in charge of the government department of energy in the UK, he got up in front of everyone and he, and he said, um, hey, industry, 
Uh, you're always telling me what I'm getting wrong and how you need to change things. And then when I change things, you're telling me it's hitting the cost of capital and I just need to leave things stable. And I think that's not, you know, I've heard that, I've heard that sort of framing from regulators, from policymakers around around the world in a lot of contexts. You just said in terms of sort of the large scale renewables, it's it's better to move sooner rather than later. Obviously, it's going to depend on the problem. But how do you sort of how do you think philosophically about the place of the regulator? You know, mm-hmm. are you, you know, is it is it? So my my take is sort of I don't mind a regulator being a little bit slow. You know, I don't want a regulator guessing at what the future will look like. You know, respond to the problem. Don't don't try to forecast the problem because that's hard to do. But how do you like? And then there are obviously different instances, you know, with electric vehicle rollout, sometimes you need the, the charging infrastructure before the vehicles come and, and those types of things. But like philosophically, how do you think about the regulator's role? Are you happy to be reactive or are you thinking you need to be a, a proactive, you know, change driver in the Philippines? I think for the Philippine context, given that we're a developing economy, um, I think we need to be both. We need to be proactive and reactive as well. Um, and more if, you know, if given all the resources that we can possibly have, more proactive than, than reactive. Um, I think we need to recognize that we, we have a key role. We have a key contribution to progress in the country. I think it would be, it would have been different if, you know, if I were a regulator in a, I know in a developed country, in a first, what they call the first world, and I say quote, quote unquote, first world country, I think I would take a different, uh, it would be a different mindset. But in a developing nation, all, you know, all hands on deck, um, all mm-hmm. players need to play a role, need to contribute to moving us forward. And that's, that's where I think, um, at least on my, you know, you asked me about my personal philosophy on on regulation and that's 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 i think where i stand i think we need to make sure we contribute to progress and we don't stand in the way of progress but at the same time and that's why i i say reactive as well recognizing if we have if there is something that needs to be fixed like if a regulation that we thought would work well does not work well for for various reasons we need to be able to pull back and say Let's let's change course. Let's shift course, and let's let's do it differently. So so that we protect also the interests of the of the consumers. Interesting, and a, and a sort of related one. And I and I get that, and I I think I see that a little bit. You know, in the in the different markets Aurora operates. I do I do think it's a bit more of a collaborative endeavor. Mm-hmm. You know, I yes. suppose in, in uh, sort of. Where where liberal where, where liberalization of the markets has happened less quickly, where you haven't spent the last couple of decades building up these sometimes adversarial institutions that often know exactly what their turf is and what their turf mm-hmm. isn't. Um, you do get a more collaborative sort of approach, and I think that's that sometimes works yeah. works better. The other, so I want to talk a little bit about about kind of the your career and the way you you go about things, Mona. And the, the first thing is sort of. People won't know. A lot of our listeners won't know this, but you're a bit of a celebrity in the Philippines. You know, you do a lot of media appearances. Um, no, you do that. <laughs> Maybe I'm overstating it. I don't. I mean, it's hard. It's hard to know the media context. But you're know, you're a well-known person, and is it? I mean, is there a risk in being too prominent? Again, and maybe it's sort of the the European context, but it's sort of you make yourself a target, right? And to some extent, you want to 
you want a kind of boring, you want a boring regulator who's who know what you know. If you, it's oh, like yeah. being a goalkeeper, yes. it's like being a goalkeeper in football. It's like if people notice you, that then something's going wrong here. Um, <laughs> yes. So, how do you think about your role and your public prominence? Absolutely agree. My goal is to be a boring regulator. That's <laughs> that's really that's really the goal because that means that everything is running smoothly, right? Mm-hmm. Um, people don't need to see the regulator or have the regulator explain certain things because things are working as they should. So that's why that's my goal. Um, but admittedly, because, well, I think there's also some cultural context to it. In the Philippines, if you're in government, you're somehow a celebrity. Okay. So because you, you know, you get, you get interviewed by, you know, by, by media, you get, you know, included in the events of certain, uh, you know, the really high-profile politicians. So that's that's I think where it's coming from. But again, we were talking about philosophies earlier on regulation. My philosophy on leadership is: if I am put in this position, and if there are these, um, I might say I don't seek, uh, I don't seek certain certain trappings of the of the position but if it's part of the position then um, i might as well use it to mm. advance the the purpose of the agency so all those media interviews it's to explain what's happening in the sector it's to explain how this energy market works just as what we're just as what we're doing now you know i i embrace them as opportunities to level up the discussion level up the conversation in in this in in this uh in this platform in you know more local platforms like i take radio interviews at 5 a.m mm-hmm. if you know if there because radio has really a, a wider reach it's still mm-hmm. in the philippines especially in the in the countrysides so if it will if it takes me to explain wake up at 4 30 a.m and explain at <laughs> 5 a.m in the radio why we decided certain cases the way that we did then that's you know that's that's the job that's yeah. that's really how i think about it just to follow up i mean you know we're all kind of deep energy wonks and <laughs> you know you yes. can talk about the, the grid and but i think one of the challenges with energy is one it's become very politically sensitive as you say there are multiple transitions happening simultaneously mm-hmm. and so you know, politicians in every country want to comment on it, but it's increasingly a, a vote winning or, or losing issue. But at the same time, it's getting more complicated, right? There's more technologies. Um, different countries are taking different paths to decarbonization, although there are commonalities. When when you're commenting publicly, I mean, I suppose the fundamental answer is it's just difficult. Like, how do you convey that this is hard, but there are opportunities, but we're going to have to spend some money? Like, what what's your theory on communicating difficult energy concepts to to the public? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think it it works that my my so I'm a lawyer, but my undergraduate mm. degree, my pre law degree, was communications. Mm. So <laughs> so it helps a lot that you know there were are concepts that were purely theoretical before that I get to you know I get to practice today. One is make it you know get it get it to get it as close to home as possible. Whenever, as I mentioned earlier, for example, I was, those radio interviews, I have to translate to, for example, how many kilos of rice will this 
translate to? Will this rate translate to? Um, we had a very one of the more difficult cases that we decided uh, last year was when we denied uh, a claim for price adjustment by mm. uh, by a utility, and we had to explain in public why we had to why we denied that um, that price adjustment. Because the utility was saying, no, just grant us this price adjustment because it will be better in the long run. So we had to explain why it wasn't better in the long run. And in order to translate that, because if we talk about pesos per kilowatt hour, for example, it's very hard <laughs> yeah. for, for ordinary folks, right, to um, to you know to grasp that idea. But if you translate that into kilos of pesos of kilos of rice. That would have been bought by that pesos per kilowatt hour if we if we had granted the the, the petition. Then it's ah, then you you almost hear the aha on the other side mm. of the of the of the of the radio set where you know people then realize ah, that's what it means. So it's translating it to the everyday the everyday stuff that people can relate to it depends on the audience of course yeah. um if it's an if it's a different audience that has a different uh medium in terms of understanding then you you translate it to what's common to them like i i teach also in well i used to teach i had to stop uh because of the workload now but i used to teach in the law school so if you translate it to grades for example because students <laughs> appreciate that and um, you know, just translate it to something that they get to that that wouldn't be difficult for them to uh, get the concept of. For what it's worth, I mean, it is so. It feels like it's impossible for politicians to debate these topics. You know, you, the the level of debate is, it, it, at least in Europe, in North America, is, is the target forty percent by twenty thirty five. Is it fifty percent by twenty thirty two? And you're kind of trying to position yourself on. Years and you know, in general, decarbonization is by you know bipartisan in, in in a lot of the OECD at least, and so you're sort of competing on this. And I think over the last decade, we got to the point where we get these very farcical targets that will never be achieved, but no one ever kind of checked out whether they made any yeah, sense or yes. not, right? And then, and I see that on both sides of the Atlantic. And so, I just I think there is this vacuum or this open space for a great communicator who's not a politician who can add a level of detail or no, it's why we're so lucky to have guys like, you know, Simon Evans, Hugo in, at, um, at um, Carbon Brief or Jesse Jenkins mm. in the US or the you know, guy new in the UK who are great communicators who are prepared to go a level slightly below. Uh, most people don't listen to them because people don't, you know, people don't engage with that. But, but I think these are, these are definitely policy shaping uh, views. So I, I think it's we are wonderful in general that there are people who publicly Get in, get into the detail. We try to do it on this podcast a bit as well. Mm -hmm. I, I had one more. <laughs> I had one more, Hugo. If I, if I may, just on your career mode. I like talking about our guest careers, but you've had this super varied career: academia, public service, um, uh, trade organisations. Now you're running the the regulator. I think increasingly people are specialising in the world, um, uh, you know, in all, in all sorts of fields. You know, there's no more, you know, polymaths in academia and there's no more sort of journey journeymen, journey people um, uh, in their careers. Do you think that's an advantage having had that diverse background? You talked about your, your communications degree, but in what ways do you see that diversity as a benefit in your career right mm -hmm. now? Would you have been better off just being a regulator for the last, for, you know, for your whole career since graduation? 
Oh God, I don't, I don't want to be a regulator for my entire life. <laughs> <laughs> it's a burnout that happens at some point, I suspect. Yeah. Yes, yes. Well, my the way I view it is, I use whatever I have to, you know, to to do a better job. So my background is admittedly diverse, um, but I think it's a it's an advantage because I turn it into an advantage. So mm-hmm. I build with what I, I build with what I currently have. If if it were otherwise, for example, if I had uh, my first job out of law school was in a was in a law firm, but that was short lived. I I went to the Supreme Court. I actually clerked for for a justice, and it was good. I love clerking for. I love law clerk work. Um, and if I had, I'm thinking now, if I had stayed there all my life and then became a regulator, would that have been an ad- advantage also? I think, I think it would have been an advantage also, um, because the, the variety, the diversity mm. of cases that a justice, uh, has to study and has to, um, has to rule upon also brings about certain wisdom, right? To, um, to, and a wealth of experience at, as well, admittedly a bit. Uh, maybe two two steps uh two steps far uh from from where the action takes place but it's it's also it's also good so i think ultimately it's a mindset um if you're if you're one to desire certain things before you do something before you feel like okay i'm ready to do this then okay then that's your formula my formula has always been i'll use what i have and I'll do a better job using what what you know what's given me the cards that I'm dealt with. So, well, I feel even after this uh, brief conversation, you'd have been a terrific law lecturer. I did an undergrad degree at law, but was was not oh. a star student. I could have definitely done with a few more lecturers like you along the journey. <laughs> it's um, fun. I like I like teaching actually. So. Yep. And and Hugo is he's self-deprecating here. I think he has a first in law from Melbourne Law School, which is not which is not an easy thing to do. I I dropped out of law after a year or so of law school. So Hugo, you were you were a god at Melbourne Law School uh, in my, in my book. I was tempted to drop out after my first year. Law school is hard. It is, <laughs> you know, but it is. but I'm glad I, I'm glad I pushed through. So. We wanted to get a couple of rapid fire questions here at the end. And mm-hmm. I try and ask these on every pod that I host. What's what's one out of consensus view that you think you have on the energy transition as a whole? So I suppose we're asking you to calibrate your views against conventional wisdom on a on a topic. Mm-hmm. I don't know if this is out of consensus, but definitely when I talk about this, you know, even in a room full of politicians, they get you know, you're treading on dangerous ground. So maybe it is out of consensus. But I like talking about energy democracy. Um, mm. And I think one of the, it's it's un, it's us, it's not usually spoken about it when we talk about transition, but I think it's one of the fruits of the transition that we have increasingly um, as a higher level of democracy participation in the energy space more than what we have seen in the last maybe 10, 20 years. It's, mm. it's, it's partly because of technology. Technology enables, mm. uh, you know, the advent of what we call the prosumers, the prosumer market. But I think it's more than, it's more than technology. It's a mindset that people can actually choose. And it's quite liberating when mm. people know, ah, I can choose to be supplied by renewables, right? So before it was, you know, we're, we're all passive. 
we're all just recipients of whatever our utilities deliver to us. But now there is that ability to demand. Um, I demand that, you know, I, I, of course, electrons are not colored, but I demand green electrons to be flowing mm -hmm. in my house or I will build my own. I will set up my own sol solar facility because I want to know that, you know, what powers my house is is not impacting on the adversely on the environment. So there are those um, there are those fruits of of the transition, I think, that um, that we will see. I, I hope still in my lifetime, but we will see them, you know, being the norm. Uh, I think uh, in in the future. So, and I, you know, that entire package, I think, is is uh, energy democracy to to mm. my mind. So, yeah. And then one final question: Who do you read or listen to in the energy space that you think is always good and thought provoking and and kind of relevant to you as a, a, a regulator? Mm -hmm. Uh. I, I read, I listen a lot. I love podcasts, especially during weekends when I'm, you know, doing chores in the house and it's just yeah, yeah, yeah. sort of white noise, but I'm still absorbing <laughs> all those things. But I, I listen to a lot um, on, on the energy space. But if I may, di you know, diverge a little, mm. I think what 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 enriches my my practice, what enriches my being a regulator is listening to non-energy <laughs> to non-energy yeah. speakers because they it gives me a different perspective on things like speakers on leadership speakers mm. on the workspace on AI and digitization mm. and digital this new you know this new uh this new um phenomenon that we that we find ourselves in that's where i i really deliberately seek speakers on speakers and uh and books and podcasts in, in that space like people like um well podcasts by adam grant um mm. james clear uh arthur brooks and and the like so people that you know just in a generic space just challenges your thinking i think no, I can completely agree. I mean, I'm I'm very bad. I think I subscribe to something like 30 energy podcasts now. And it's almost like buying the weekly economist. Like I don't even get a quarter of the way through. And then this accumulated guilt builds up because I can never <laughs> so I, I certainly need to diversify my podcast listing. And that sounds like a few great suggestions. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Thank you so much for taking the time Thank to you. talk with us. As I said, the no. first guest from the Philippines on the pod. I think we're 160 episodes in and we couldn't have asked for a better one. So thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you so much for, for your time as well. And I thanks for the, the challenging questions. I again I, I like, you know, I like hearing from different jurisdictions. I like hearing from different uh, ways of thinking. So thank you. And John, thanks right. for joining us too. No, thanks for having me. What a what a conversation and, and thanks for me, Mona, as well. That was Mona Lisa Dimalanta, chairperson of the Energy Regulatory Commission of the Philippines, talking to Hugo Batten, managing director of Aurora in APAC, and John Federson, founder and CEO of Aurora. Do keep an eye on our podcast feed for more in-depth conversations with senior members of the energy industry. The best way to do this is to subscribe on whatever platform you use. Thanks for listening and goodbye.